Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. For the last couple of months, we have been working our way through the life of Joseph as it is recorded for us in the final chapters of the book of Genesis. And we have watched as, as a 17-year-old, he was sold into slavery by his brothers as as he rose to a position of some prominence in the house of Pharaoh, only to be falsely accused and, and thrown into Pharaoh's prison. How he again rose to prominence in Pharaoh's prison uh, and was put into a position where he could interpret the dreams of some of Pharaoh's other prisoners, only to be forgotten by him when his interpretations came to pass. And then we saw, of course, how when Pharaoh himself had a dream, uh, the cupbearer finally remembered Joseph and and told Pharaoh about him. And he was brought into Pharaoh's court and was uh, given the opportunity and the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret Pharaoh's dreams for him. And not only to interpret his dreams, but to tell him how he ought to respond to the significance of those dreams. And so Joseph rose to be uh, the, the second most powerful person in the land. And then, of course, because of the famine, his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain and uh, through the course of some testing. And uh, he he is reunited with his brothers. And when he is reunited, he invites them to come and to live in Egypt uh, with him and to enjoy the the prosperity that he has uh, come to enjoy in Egypt, because there are yet five years remaining in The famine. And so last week we saw Jacob's response to that invitation. Will he come and and live with his son in Egypt? At first, he wasn't sure he wanted to do that because he didn't want to leave the promised land. But he went to Beersheba and there at Beersheba, the Lord made a promise, not a new promise, but the same promise he had made so many years earlier in Jacob's life, the promise that he would go with him. And that he would be there to bless him no matter where he went. And that in time he would bring him back to the promised land. And that he would indeed give him his inheritance. And so with that promise in hand, Jacob takes his family, every last member of his family, all of his possessions, all of his good, and he moves to the land of Egypt. Well, this morning we are going to look at... Jacob's time in the land of Egypt, the the years that he spent living there as a sojourner in a foreign land. And as we consider Jacob's time in Egypt, we will learn something ourselves about living as sojourners in a foreign land. Now, some of you may be wondering why you need to know how to live as a sojourner. If you, if you have no plans to ever leave the United States, if you have no plans to ever leave Tennessee, maybe even you have no plans to ever even leave Cleveland, you're, you're here for life, as so many people are. You're like, why do I need to know how to live as a sojourner? But the truth is, even if you never leave Cleveland, you are still, like Jacob, a sojourner in a foreign land. For this world is not your home. This world is is not your inheritance. And therefore, whether you live here in Cleveland, whether you you move overseas, you need to know how to conduct yourself well. 
throughout the time of your exile. And so with that in mind, let us pray and ask God that he would bless the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we don't often think of ourselves as sojourners. We don't often think of ourselves as exiles. And yet your word shows us that we are, Father. You tell us that our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. And so, Father, we ask that as we turn our attention to the story of, of Jacob this morning, Father, that you would teach us how to live well as strangers in a foreign land. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the sake of his name and his kingdom. Amen. Genesis chapter 46. I'm going to begin uh, reading at verse 28. Uh, and we are going to read uh, uh, most of uh, chapter 47, uh, skipping just a few verses in the middle. So let us read together. This is the word of God. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come to the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father 
his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And skipping down to verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And that is the reading of God's Word. I wonder how many of you have ever spent time in a foreign country. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel with my dad and my older brother to the city of Kampala in the country of Uganda in the heart of Africa. And we went there to teach a, a summer class at the African Bible College during their uh, sort of their, their January term, except it was in the summer, uh, their summer term class at the African Bible College. And when we got there, uh, it was the first time that I had been out of the country. It was the, it was the first time that I had really been out of the United States. And so, needless to say, I had a lot of learning to do. A lot of learning to do about how to be in a foreign country. About how, how to live in a place other than my home. I had to learn, for example, how to secure my mosquito net before I went to bed at night so that I didn't get eaten alive. And they were very particular about this. You know, there's a certain way that you have to get yourself in and then make sure that it gets closed behind you. And there were other things that I had to learn. I had to learn when you flush the toilet and when you don't flush the toilet in a land where there's not a lot of water. And they even they gave us a little rhyme to try to remember how this all works. And I'll spare you what that was. <laughs> But what we knew that there were things to learn, that, that life was different, that what was expected was not the same as what we do here in the United States. I had to learn about how to live in a foreign country. But not only did I have to learn what was expected, it wasn't just a matter of learning. There were also decisions that had to be made. You see, when we go to a foreign country, we don't want to act inappropriately. We, we don't want to cause unnecessary offense. But at the same time, you cannot simply adopt the lifestyle of the country that you're going to wholesale. You can't simply say, well, I'm going to do everything that they do. And that's especially true if you're going to a place where uh, the culture has been largely shaped by a non-Christian worldview. If you're going to a place where, where the predominant worldview, the predominant religion is, is something other than Christianity, then there, there are things to learn about how to conduct yourself, but there are also decisions to be made about what you can and cannot do as a follower of Christ in that culture. Because there are, in certain cultures, certain things that you simply cannot do in good faith as a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And we recognize this readily enough when, when we are going to a foreign country. If you are uh, going on a short-term mission trip to a, to a country that is predominantly Islamic, for example, you are going to know that, okay, there are certain things about the culture I have to learn, but there are also certain things that I'm going to have to simply avoid. There are certain things I'm going to have to not do. But what I want you to see this morning is that same process, that, that same process of learning what is expected, but also making decisions about what you can participate in. That same process holds true even when you stay right here in Cleveland, even when you stay close to home. Because the truth is, whether you travel abroad or whether you stay home, If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a sojourner in a foreign country. You are an exile. This world is not your home. Peter says as much in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 17. He says, if you call on Him as Father, that is, if you call the Lord God Almighty Father, if you call the Judge of the earth Father, then you must conduct yourself with fear, that is, fear of the Lord, throughout the time of your exile. He just says it. He says this is, this is an exile. It echoes the language that, that Jacob himself uses here in this text as, as he refers to the years of his sojourning. Did you hear that? When, when Pharaoh asked Jacob how old he was, he says, well, you know, the years of my sojourning have been... He refers to his life here on earth as a life of sojourning. And if you call God Father, if you have been adopted as his child in Christ, then you too are a sojourner. Paul makes this same point in Philippians chapter 3, where he says just straightforwardly, our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. And think about that. That's coming from the lips of one who was a citizen of Rome. One who had the the great privilege of, of being a citizen of the empire. And yet he says, my most valuable citizenship, my true citizenship, my my primary citizenship is not here. But rather my true citizenship, my primary citizenship is in heaven. And because this is true, because his, his first citizenship is in heaven, he, he draws the conclusion that we must therefore not walk as the people of this world walk. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the, and the futility of their things, but rather we must walk differently because this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven We are presently sojourners living in a foreign land. And because this is true, because this is true in each of every one of us, we must learn how to live well as exiles. We must learn not only how to understand the culture we live in, but we must learn how to make decisions about what we can and cannot do. And I think as we look at at Jacob's life, the the 17 years that he spends in Egypt, it will teach us some important things about how to live as sojourners in a foreign land. And the first, I think, and, and maybe most important thing that we learn is that because this world is not our home, we must be different. We must remain distinct. We we must remain 
separate. We see this at the end of chapter 46 and in the beginning of, of chapter 47. Notice uh, how Joseph talks to his brothers. When, when his family comes to him, he says, listen, when you talk to Pharaoh, make sure you tell him that you're shepherds. He says, listen, I'll tell them that you're shepherds. And then when you talk to them, make sure you tell them that you're shepherds. And the reason that we want to emphasize this to Pharaoh, the reason we want Pharaoh to know that you are shepherds is so that you will be allowed to live in the land of Goshen, a land that is sort of set apart from uh, the heart of Egypt. He says, if you want to live there, you need to let Pharaoh know that you are shepherds. Why? Because look at the last phrase of, of chapter 46. He says, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, how many of you want to be known as an abomination? Well, not exactly, but what's Joseph's point? Joseph's point is, listen, if he knows your shepherds, he'll be glad to let you live apart. He'll, he'll be glad to let you remain distinct. In fact, there are some commentators that suggest that, that, that in God's wisdom, one of the reasons that he has them grow into a great nation in the land of Egypt rather than in the land of Canaan is because in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites were more than willing to intermingle with Abraham's family. We've, we've already seen this in the way that they have already begun to marry one another. But in the land of Egypt, that wasn't going to happen. The, the Egyptians regarded the Israelites as an abomination. They weren't going to intermarry with them. And so it was easy or easier for the Jewish people uh, to grow into a great nation and to remain distinct in the land of Egypt. And I think this separation, this, this setting this part of themselves from the land where they live, that is meant to be a model for us as God's people today. We are to remain distinct. There's a saying that suggests that when a person is in Rome, they are to do as the Romans do. And, of course, I think the church today seems to have believed that wholeheartedly. You know, survey after survey after survey suggests that there is little difference between those who call themselves Christians and those who do not. That if you look at our lives, if you look at the way that we, we live, if you look at the way we spend our time and our money and uh, the things that we dream about, that, that there's very little difference between Christians and non-Christians in the world today. But of course we know it ought not to be that way. The, the difference ought to be clear. The, the difference ought to be startling even between the people of God, the people who are Disciples of Christ and the rest of the world. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He opens Ephesians chapter 4 saying, listen, you are supposed to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. You've been called to be disciples of Christ. You've been called to be children of God Live like it. Live out that calling. Be different. Be distinct. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then, of course, he goes on to, to spell out what that means in, in great detail in the rest of the book. He makes a very similar point in, in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. No longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. No, no longer be like them. And it's not only Paul who makes this point. Peter makes much the same point in, in the first chapter of his letter where he says that we have been rescued 
from the futile ways handed down to us by our forefathers. He says, your forefathers lived a certain way. Your, your forefathers walked in a certain way. And you have been rescued from those ways by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Clearly, there is this thread that, that runs throughout the New Testament that says, because we are the people of God, because we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we ought to be distinct. We ought to be different. We ought to be different in the way that we use our, our money and our time. Now, here's something. You know, it, sometimes it's hard for us to see the distinction. You know, if you tithe, you are already different. If you use an online tax program, you'll, you'll get yellow flagged if you claim that you tithe. Because they say, well, that's suspicious. You know, if you're giving a tithe to the church, then, then you are suspicious. Are you really giving that much to the church? If you are faithful in worship on Sunday morning, if you, if you are faithfully here week after week, giving your Sunday mornings to the worship of the Lord and, and fellowship with His people, then you are already different. But I want you to hear something. The difference ought to be more than just this. It ought to be different, not just that we give a tithe, but the way we spend the other 90% of our income ought to be different too. The, the things that we prioritize, the things that we value ought to be different. The way that we spend the other six days of the week ought to be different too. What do we fill our schedule with? Our lives ought to be different because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We ought to be distinct in, in our ambitions and our dreams. What would you consider success? This week I've been reading a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And, and he, in this book, goes to great lengths to talk about what does a wasted life look like? And, and how would you define that? And I would suggest to you that, that the world would define a wasted life very differently than the church. In fact, Piper, uh, he cites an article that appeared in Reader's Digest some time ago. And he says that this article is sort of presented as the American dream. There was this couple that, you know, he was 59 and she was 55. And you know, they had earned enough money that they could finally retire. And now they spend their time, you know, on their sailboat down in Florida, uh, you know, trawling around and fishing and, and looking for seashells and, and playing golf. And he says, to me, this is the American dream. He says, but from my perspective as a pastor of Jesus Christ, that is the very definition of a wasted life. He says, that is not what your life is for. You were created to, to magnify the glory of God. He says, what we, what we see as success, what we see as a wasted life, what we, what we see as, as our ambitions here and now, he says, that is radically altered, that is radically changed by the fact that we know this world is not our home. That we have an inheritance coming in the coming kingdom of God. We ought to be distinct. We ought to be distinct not only in what we dream about, but we ought to be distinct in the way that we respond when those dreams seem to be shattered by the realities of life. How do you respond to trial? How do you respond to hardship? Where is your hope when the world sees no reason for hope? How do you respond when you're called on to love your enemy? We ought to be distinct. The world sees no reason to love its enemy. It sees no reason not to pay back in kind. But, but we are called on to be different. 
Because we know this world is not our home. And and we could list innumerable ways, innumerable ways that, that we are to be different. We are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But rather, we are to be different in every facet of our lives. Our lives are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the question that we must be willing to ask ourselves is just that. Are we distinct? Are you different than your non-Christian neighbors? Do you spend your evenings and your Saturdays pretty much the same way that they do? Is it pretty much the same way as everyone else on your street? Do you, do you spend your money pretty much the same way that, that they do? Do you make career decisions pretty much the same way that they do? Or do you have a different mindset? Has your mind been renewed and therefore your life transformed? Are you willing to take certain risks because you know that God is, is for you? Are, you? are you willing to forego certain pleasures because you have different priorities? Are you willing to endure certain trials without losing heart because your ultimate goal is the glory of God and not your own comfort? As sojourners and foreigners in this land, this land that is not our home, we ought to be different. And so we must ask ourselves, are we distinct? But in our quest to be different, we must also recognize that difference is not the same as indifference. Difference doesn't mean that we simply don't care about this world. It doesn't mean that we simply don't care about this life. We, we see this in uh, the rest of the chapter as we, we look at verses 7 through 12 of, of chapter 47. Notice in those verses we are twice told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now that is a surprising statement. Remember what the author of Hebrews says? He says it is just common knowledge that the greater blesses the lesser. Right? You remember that? Well, here, Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. How is it that Jacob is in a position to bless Pharaoh? Jacob is the one who doesn't have any food. Jacob is the one who's having to come to to Pharaoh for, for a place to live. And yet, Jacob blesses Pharaoh because Jacob, has the promises of God. Jacob has, has the blessings of God. And therefore, because Jacob has the blessings of God, he is able to say to Pharaoh, may God, may my God bless you as well. Because Jacob understands, because Jacob knows that Pharaoh's only hope of blessing, whether he recognizes it or not, is that his God be for him. And as we live in this world, we have the same understanding that the only hope this world has is if our God is for it. And so we seek the good of the place we live. Just as as God told the Israelites when He sent them into exile, He said, listen, seek the good of the land to which I am sending you. Seek the good of, of the city where you are going to dwell. Difference does not mean indifference. We see it in, in Jacob's own brothers. Remember what uh, Jacob's brothers are going to serve Pharaoh as his royal shepherd. Sure, the, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, but they needed shepherds. You know, they, they needed someone to take care of their flocks. And, and here, Joseph's brothers are going to serve in that capacity. And it's not just Joseph's brothers. Joseph himself was already serving as, as Pharaoh's right-hand man. They are, they are doing stuff that is in the best interest of the country where they live. They are, they are seeking to be 
a blessing. And again, I think this is a model for us. That we are to seek the blessing of the land in which we live. We are to seek the common good of our neighbors. You see, it would be easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, well, because this world is not our home, what's the point? You may have heard people talk about polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Have you heard that expression before? It's an expression that is often used to say, you know, don't waste your time with this life. Don't, don't waste your time with this world. It's not that important. But that is not what we are told. We are, we are told to seek to be a blessing. We are, we are told to, to seek to, to bring this life into conformity with, with God's wisdom and God's words that all might enjoy His shalom. That is what we are called to as the people of God. Yes, we are to be different, but at the same time, we are to seek to be a blessing. And each and every one of you does that as as you seek to, to do whatever it is that God has given you to do to the praise of His glory. Whether you're a writer or a, or a teacher or an accountant, a manager, an engineer, it doesn't matter. In your way, you are seeking to do something useful, something that brings good to your neighbors, something that, that promotes the common good of, of the place where you live. And this is what we are called to. Yes, we are called to be different. But at the same time, we are called to be a blessing. God's people are not to be enemies of the state. They, they are not to be recluses that have no interest in the state. But rather, they are to be those who are known for giving themselves away in the service of others. This is why Paul says in Galatians, he says, listen, do good to all. Do good to all. Yes, especially the household of faith, but do good to all. It is what we are called to as people of God. And we are free to do it because we know that this world is not our Home. In fact, that is the next question. How? How can we learn to both be distinct and a blessing? It certainly doesn't come naturally. By, by nature, we conform to the pattern of this world. It, it, it's just easy. We, we go with the flow. We, we do what the world does. By, by nature, we put our own interests and our own desires ahead of everybody else's. That's, that's the way that we are, are wired with our sinful nature. And yet we're called to go against that nature. We're, we're called to, to do that which, which seems counterintuitive to our flesh. So how can we train ourselves to renounce the passions of our flesh? How can we train ourselves to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age? Where do we find the strength and the wisdom and the love that is necessary to be both different and a blessing to this world that we live in? Well, we find our answer, I think, in the very last paragraph that we read this morning, the very last paragraph of, of chapter 47. Notice Jacob's last request. He says, do not bury me in Egypt. He's lived there for some 17 years. And yet he still does not regard it as his home. Throughout those 17 years, he has remembered that he is a sojourner in a foreign land. He has kept that in the forefront of his mind. 
And it's because he has remembered that. It's because he has remembered that his true inheritance lies elsewhere. That he has been able to live well as a sojourner in Egypt. And again, this is instructive to us. Where do we find the strength and the wisdom and and the love necessary to, to remain distinct while being a blessing? I think we find it when we remember that this world is not our home. You see, when we remember that, being different makes sense. When we remember that, giving ourselves away in the service of others makes sense. It's only when we forget, it's only when we fall into the, what Paul calls the, the, the deceived ways of thinking of this world that we begin to live the way the world does. You see, the world's life is based upon the lies that the world has believed. When we remember the truth, we are set free from those futile ways of living. Those are ways that are based upon our former ignorance, Peter says. And so the solution is to remember the truth, is to, is to remember what is ours in Christ, to, to remind ourselves regularly of the inheritance that is ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Jacob, if we are to live well throughout the time of our exile, we must intentionally and consistently remember that this world is not our home. We must be ever reminding ourselves and one another that this world is not our home. Because when we keep this in the forefront of our mind, it will transform our lives. After she graduated from college, my youngest sister, Ruth, went to South Africa to be a short-term missionary. Her plan was, was to spend a year or two there working with orphans and then to come back to the United States. But while she was there, she met a guy. She met a guy named Gary, and uh, he was in seminary at the time, working to become a pastor there in South Africa. And long story short, they fell in love, they got engaged, and they came back to the United States to get married here so that my dad could perform the wedding. But then after the, mar- after the wedding, they were going to go back to South Africa to live, which is where they are today. But you can imagine that if... You're getting married here and you're going to live there. It has some serious implications for the way that you're going to register for gifts. You see, you can't register for that frying pan and that blender and that microwave if you're not going to be here to use it. And and you certainly don't want to pay to ship all that stuff across the United States. And so knowing that they weren't going to live where they were getting married radically changed the way they were given gifts. In fact, they were given pretty much exclusively gift cards. Everybody gave them the same thing. Here's a gift card. Buy what you need when you get home because this is not going to be your home. You see, and they had to know that as they were planning. They just sort of forgot, well, we're going to be living in South Africa. And they they had gotten married here the way everybody else gets married here. They would have had a pile of stuff that they couldn't take with them back to their home. A pile of stuff that they wouldn't have been able to use. I think it's a a good illustration of the way we ought to think about our lives. This world is not our home. Yes, we're here now, but this is not where we're going to live forever. We don't want a pile of stuff that we're not going to be able to take with us. It's going to radically change what we think is important. It's going to radically change the way that we want to live our lives here because we know eventually we are going there. 
In that book I mentioned, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper describes a a plaque that hung on the wall in the kitchen of his home when he was growing up. On the plaque, he said, was just simply a, a piece of wood painted black. These words were painted. It said, we only have one life to live. It soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. He said, it's not good poetry, but... It's profound. It is a profound reminder of the truth. And Piper said in his life that plaque was transformative. He didn't want to waste his life pursuing the treasures and pleasures of this world, even in a good and wholesome way. You see, it wasn't just that he wanted to avoid sin. He, didn't, he wanted to avoid trifles. He, he wanted to avoid things that didn't really matter. It's fine to enjoy a football game, but when that football game becomes your life, there's a problem. It's fine to to enjoy your music, but when that music becomes the reason you live, that is a problem. Piper understood that he wanted to spend his life on what really mattered, on, on what was substantive, on what had eternal value. He wanted to spend his life magnifying the glory of Christ, because he understood only what's done for Christ will last. I believe our lives ought to be similarly transformed by the knowledge that this world is not our home. As we've seen, this doesn't mean that, that we don't care about this world. We, we do and we, we should. But it does mean that our priorities ought to reflect eternity. Our priorities ought to reflect the reality of what is promised to us in the gospel. Jesus once told a parable about a foolish farmer who, who when his barns were full, he tore them down to build bigger ones. Jesus called him a fool because he forgot that this very night his soul might be called to account. He called him a fool because he didn't view life from the perspective of eternity. We must not make that mistake, because if we do, we will certainly, to use Piper's phrase, we will certainly waste our lives. But if we remember, if we remember that in Christ and through his finished work on our behalf, that we are heirs of the coming kingdom of God, when when and if we remember that, then our lives will not be wasted but rather we will be set free to spend them freely, fully, liberally for the sake of His glory. Now, if you don't know Christ, that may not sound like a great option. Why would I want to spend my life living for someone else? You fear losing your life. I understand. But let me tell you what Christ said. He said, listen, the one who will lose his life for my sake, that is the one who will find true life indeed. When you try to save your life, you'll lose it anyway. But if you will lose it for Christ's sake, His promise is this, that you will find it. You will find it. And you will inherit the coming kingdom of God. And because that is true, because that is what is promised to us in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the future that is promised us in Christ. 
And we thank you for the way that future transforms our lives here and now. Father God, set us free by the renewing of our minds to live transformed lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.